This is the Paul Kirtley Podcast, episode 47. The Paul Kirtley Podcast. Wilderness bushcraft, survival skills and outdoor life. Welcome, welcome to episode 47 of the Paul Kirtley Podcast. Now, I haven't invented a time machine. This isn't an episode that was recorded back in 1995, but back in 1995, there was a gathering of survival instructors in northern Sweden near Jukasjavi. And this gathering has become almost the stuff of legend amongst bushcraft and survival instructors. One of the big driving forces behind this gathering was Lars Falt. And those of you who have followed my podcast for a while will remember Lars joined me on episode 32, which was a magazine episode recorded with a number of guests at the Swedish Bushcraft Festival in August 2018. On that episode, Lars recounted some of his personal history with survival training, and I encourage you to have a listen to it if you haven't already. Those of you who have followed my work for a while might also know that I had the honour of working alongside Lars on winter courses in northern Sweden in the 2000s. Lars is one of the grandfathers of modern survival training, particularly in Scandinavia. Um, his influence, though, has been much broader, not just on survival, but also bushcraft more widely, and particularly because of his collaborative nature and willingness to share. So it was great to catch up with Lars again at the GBS, which was all about sharing skills, knowledge and pedagogical methodologies. There were other veterans of the 1995 Survival Instructors Gathering present at the 2019 GBS too, Mors Kahansky being one of them. Mors, of course, has featured on this podcast several times in the last 12 months, and it is a pleasure to have him included in this podcast too, and I doubt he needs very much introduction. Tom Luchens, retired US Air Force survival instructor, was also present at the 95 conference, and it was an absolute pleasure to meet him for the first time and spend time with him at the GBS. He joins Lars and Moores on this podcast too. So it was they gathered together for a panel discussion chaired by Jonathan MacArthur, who you may remember from episode 36 with him and Moores. They're also joined by a mystery guest who some of you may know. So without much further introduction on my part, it's my great pleasure to bring you one of the panel discussions from the 2019 Global Bushcraft Symposium in Alberta, Canada. Stay with it. The guys do go off on a few tangents of reminiscence, but there are some powerful punchlines along the way, which should at the very least be thought provoking if you take your study of bushcraft and survival skills at all seriously. So first of all, I feel very, very humbled and honored to be sitting here uh, between some people that I would call my heroes in this or uh, my mentors. And it's, it's been a very good uh, privilege to be here uh, for the, the GBS and then being asked to do this, uh, this job. So I'll just tell you a couple things about myself and to give a bit of context as to why it was very important for me to, to sit here and facilitate this. I'm a sergeant in the Royal Canadian Air Force, outposted at Cold Lake, Alberta, and we teach uh, cold weather survival to the uh, 
pilots here, crew technicians at Four Wing. So being able to draw on this expertise and then especially, you know, the times that we've had Moors come out to Cold Lake and be in the field with the, uh, the Four Wing Ground Search and Rescue Team, it's, it's meant a lot. So, well that's enough about me. I'm John MacArthur and uh, I now I think that uh, unless you guys have been hiding under a rock for the last couple of days, uh, I think you know uh, the, the other people sitting here at the, at, with me. So of course we have uh, Mr. Morse Kohansky, uh, one of us living skills and survival instructor, extraordinaire, and a mentor to a lot of us on this side of the world and, and around the world. We also have uh, Mr. Lars Valt, uh, a former uh, Swedish Army survival instructor. He instructed, or uh, he uh, was the commander at the uh, survival uh, unit there in Sweden. Uh, so, and, and he was one of the driving forces in the organization of the 1995. Um, you know, or it could say it was the driving force of the 1995 First International Survival Symposium in, in Sweden. And then of course we have uh, Mr. Tom Luchens here to my, to my right, your guys' left, uh, and he was a USAF uh, pararescue uh, survival instructor in, in the United States Air Force. So one of the things here, you're probably looking at the table or the, uh, the, the arrangement we have here, we have an empty seat with a mic. Uh, one of the things in discovery, uh, we have you know, the instructors that were there. Well, what's good of having an instructor if you don't have a student or somebody that's coming to listen to what you have to say? So when I was in Sweden last year and attending some of the festivals there, I was very fortunate to meet somebody that had attended the 1995 uh, symposium. And he's actually here today. So I'm going to call him up here to the stage because without, you know, having the students, it's very hard for instructors to teach. So if I could have uh, Mr. Johan Skolman come up uh, to the stage, uh, that'd be great. Thank you. So as you can see, we have a, a great group here and now Without further ado, we'll just uh, start working through some of the questions uh, that we have prepared and hopefully really be able to give you guys a better insight to how the 1995 symposium affected where we are today and going forward from there, what the future is going to look like. So my first question, I'm going to come over here to Lars, is going to be what what was your objective in the organization of putting that first survival symposium together? Because every soldier has an objective. They, they know what their mission is and they're going to accomplish it. So I'm curious, is what was your, what was your objective? And, and the second part to that question is, did you feel you met your goals? I uh, have been training survival for 20 years when it was 95. And I have been around in America, Canada, and England, and all over Germany, and all over the world. And when I did survival courses, I talked to them and say, you think we can meet in the future? And many of them say, okay. And then when I invited all the people, most of them come to uh, north part in Sweden, up in Jukasjärvi, and that's quite long up. We're going to show some pictures here after, so you can see. And when we have that course a week with uh, people from uh, defense, from all countries, many countries, Canada was there, America was there, and, uh, and all in Europe was there. 
and uh, uh, the first week and when we instruct the Worcester, we have also a course for civilian people because we like them also to see that we should teach. And they have to pay for that, of course, so we get money. Then we can have that for the traveling for all instructors. And then there was one of these civilian guys, Håkan Strotz. He started survival training in Sweden after that, and he invited uh, Moss again. So he came to his place not far away from where I live. So we met again in a couple of years later. And uh, I think it was very important. And I tell them also, to, you can arrange a course. And after a couple of years, they have a course in Britain. But that was not so good. And uh, they was just talking a little bit, but not teach anything. And so I did the last course. 1990 before I get retired. And then we have that in what I live in, Karlsborg. So I think that's a good idea to have international courses. I like it very much. Thank you so much, Lars. Mm. Uh, one of the responsibilities as a moderator is uh, to make sure that you follow the schedule. And uh, I have to apologize. One of the first things I was asked to do was get the, the pictures shown. So if we could get the pictures up. So we can have a quick discussion about those. All the people who was on the course, and over, you see, there is a Finnish guy, Turk Alton, and he couldn't come here. He um, has been training survival his whole life, and he's same age as me, and he has never worked. And he don't pay any taxes, so he cannot fly. He has no money now. <laughs> and then um, we have a colonel who was uh, a chief, and he was not there. And then we have the owner of Jukasjavi. He's still owner. And then we have a major, a doctor, Booman. And then we have America, Mel DeWeese, also a world survival instructor, but he didn't come here. And then we have uh, a farmer. And then we have a man who worked for me, Christian Limbay. And then we have a general, and then we have Tom Lucian, Sean McBride from Australia, and did I say your name? There is Moskvansky. Down there, and Ingvar Holme, a professor, and Parola Granberg, a professor. And then we have Norit Major, and he was commander for the dog patrol very famous. It was in uh, up in the real north in Greenland. They were driving the whole winter up the dock patrol. And so he was chief for that. So that was the instructor who was there. And next picture, we see all the people and all the uh, who come from the different country. So we take one of these pictures. It's difficult to see who is who. And here you can talk about Sandy. So Sandy Bridges was the uh, director of the Northern Tier High Adventure Base, which is the Boy Scouts' uh, largest canoe outfitter in the world, actually, and winter camping outfitter in the world. And uh, I worked for him in the 60s when I was guiding canoe trips. And then he had a opportunity to put together a a 50th anniversary 
celebration of the Paul Cycle and Admiral Byrd expedition down to Antarctica. That happened in 1928, and in 1978, he had Moore's and Lars and myself and a whole bunch of other people that I can't remember, Arthur Ofter Heidi, who was on the Playstead expedition, uh, Pozos, Dr. Pozos, who was a uh, preeminent doctor in Duluth on uh, hypothermia, quite a few other people, that uh, Bob O'Hara, Bob O'Hara spent uh, the last 50 years uh, paddling down every known river in northern Canada to the ocean. He was there. Anyway, there was a lot of people that came, and Mars and Lars and I got to meet at that time. And uh, so we kind of credit Sandy with giving us the ability to know each other because he had the vision when, when he first came up with the idea, Sandy was quite the, the innovator, and <clears throat> he had taken a few trips to Sweden and to Finland, and he had uh, learned a lot from Lars and from Turka, I believe. Is that true? He met Turka in Finland, and he, he, was, he went to Rovaniemi, and he spent a lot of time in upper uh, Finland and Sweden and he fell in love with the place. And he, when, when he was developing the um, winter camping program, he used all of your work, all of Moore's work, all of the Air Force survival work in Alaska, all of the uh, Vunky work, all the circumpolar uh, ethnology type information, and he put the program together. He used everything that he could to make it a successful program. Anyway, that's Sandy Bridges. He's no longer with us, but uh, I'm sure he's enjoying this. Thank you so much. Uh, now, uh, I got, I've got a question for Moores. I've discussed this with him before, was sitting around his kitchen table a few times about this, and it was, it was part of the genesis for me last year to go over to Sweden and, and link up with basically uh, Lars's, students of Lars's, uh, and then I was very lucky to have uh, uh, Ewan Forsberg to take me under his wing and take me over to Sweden and show me around. But one of the questions that I, I want you guys to hear the answer to uh, is this. So Moors, that trip that you took in 1995 over to Sweden, what was one of the greatest things that came out of it for you, like long term? Well, I sold a lot of books. Uh, North, uh, bushcraft was very popular. I got accustomed to eating uh, fish for breakfast. <laughs> that pickled, pickled herring. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed, uh, there was an ice castle uh, that was finished by the time we, uh, uh, well, maybe it wasn't finished, but we used a part of it. So there was a bar, a chapel, uh, places where people could sleep and have the experience of living in, in an ice castle. Uh, I think there must have been 150 uh, survival military survival instructors at the time, and every snowmobile 
like the snowmobiles would pass through hundred snowmobiles and everybody was Japanese sitting on those snowmobiles. And a, Japan, uh, a Japanese uh, uh, decided to have a wedding, his, to be married in that ice castle. And they hired a Lutheran minister to do, and he carried on as if it was normal weather. By the time he finished with the marriage ceremony, I could hear the bride's teeth chatter <laughs> loudly because she was wearing a, a, a bridal gown that wasn't <laughs> like, she should have been wearing a parka. But uh, uh, the fellow, uh, the, 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 the husband-to-be, he came outside and he says, if you'd like to attend my wedding, well, everybody was standing around and decided all of them filled the church. So he, he all those, all those military survival instructors in their uniforms and everything uh, filed into the church and took up, a, a, you know, a, I think probably lasted a couple hours for the ceremony. Uh, we, uh, what I loved about, uh, there's a kind of a conveyance that uh, is like a is the the uh, there were carts that you could push and you pushed with your foot and when you wanted to slide you stood on one of the uh, one of the uh, it's like a big heavy skate you know probably it was uh, eight feet long I almost killed myself because I found that uh, I, I I'd had to get used to the fact that uh, uh, I better not uh, get enough speed, just in case I, I wouldn't be able to stop. <laughs> but I, I, I went out of my way to use those, those uh, conveyances for a while. Uh, the, uh, the time of year was that the, uh, at noon, if you looked hard enough, you would see a faint glow on the southern horizon, which was the glow of the sun. So the all of the lamp uh, on the street lamps were on continuously because it was that sort of dark and we we're so close I think to the uh, ocean that at a certain time it poured and rained it was got rather balmy although there was a lot of snow it poured and rained for a while I tried to meet a lot of people that were involved with the research in the um, um, design of clothing, because Sweden was probably uh, further ahead than almost any other nation with regard to research in uh, uh, military clothing, maybe uh, uh, <clears throat> for uh, uh, being active in Arctic regions. But the moment that I sidled up to some of the specialists, they would, uh, I couldn't pin them down and ask the questions I wanted because they had other thoughts about how to enjoy the, the, the conference. <clears throat> uh, well, a, one situation that I found is Tom Luchens put on a slide presentation of the development of the history of survival training in the United States Air Force. And Tom had previously 
stopped on his way at my place for a while, a week maybe, if I remember right, when he was moving from Alaska to the, the western seaboard there. And uh, so he knew where I lived. And on his slide, I looked at the slide, and it shows North America, and it says Chip Lake. Well, Tom didn't realize that I, we were just a half hour from Chip Lake. <laughs> he had the opportunity to take pictures and everything. He never realized how close we were where the United States Air Force uh, had their first survival school that was established uh, an hour and a quarter west of Edmonton in this uh, ferrying of the planes uh, from the States to Alaska. And they, they had a corridor, I understand. There's a lot of uh, crashes that occurred. So there's a museum in Edmonton, if you're interested, <clears throat> to see the, 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 you know, the stuff that was picked up when the airplanes crashed. Uh, the, uh, the Americans had some kind of uh, arrangement to provide these planes, uh, but uh, international law uh, I think dictated, if I got my information right, you couldn't fly it from the States into the Canadian, uh, uh, into Canada or over the Canadian border. So they would land near the border and they would use horses to pull the airplanes over the Canadian border and then took off again. And then Edmonton probably was the next stop and they off they went uh, to, uh, to Alaska. And there may be a, a significant cluster of planes, but only one navigator so if, if the plane with the navigator crashed, there was the, uh, the rest of the planes, they, they, you know, they, they either, I don't know if that ever happened and how they would solve that problem because they didn't have the navigator. <coughs> anyway, uh, so that result, someone in the American system decided that they needed a survival course for the people that were ferrying those planes, and it got established at Chip Lake. And of course, I would think that um, the RCAF sort of, uh, I don't know how active, I remember, I think the RCAF established survival courses after that. Uh, and I think they, the, what was done at the, uh, our, uh, the United States Air Force school, uh, schooling and survival training had a big influence, I think, on what, uh, what uh, the RCAF uh, ended up doing. But anyway, uh, I ate very well, in particular the sauna uh, phenomenon. I think that's the right way to say it. Instead of sauna, we say sauna. I do sauna. And you fry your brain, and then you come out and you eat all kinds of goodies. And the guy that run the sauna was enormous because I think he tended to eat the leftovers <laughs> or whatever. But uh, that, that was quite an enjoyable experience because it was co-educational, but the women dressed and undressed in their quarters and the men did that, then we all meet. And, uh, and uh, you know, experience the very traditional uh, social event where where you drank and and, uh, and ate special sauna type food. 
the uh, Canadian, there was a sar uh, an officer and two sergeants uh, showed up at that event, and they didn't know who I was. <laughs> they were like, uh, uh, the survival school moved to Eastern Canada somewhere, and so they realized that here's this Canadian that they didn't know was representing Canada, and they knew nothing about it, and they were engaged in the survival training uh, of, the, of the RCAF. Um, I don't know if I'm answering no. <laughs> the, the situation. Um, well, I, I uh, hobnobbed with all kinds of uh, people with high status, in particular Raymond Mears and Mel DeWeese and Sean McBride. I, it's kind of exceptional. I can. That was in 1995. I still remember all that. And then uh, Tom, I think, you, did you not sh share the, the, the accommodation with me in a kind of a, I you, think if I remember. You and I were roommates. We were roommates. And I yeah. remember the funny thing that happened. I said, Morris, this is really cool. And you said, no, this is heaven. <laughs> yeah. and, and he says to me, I said, no, you're really right. This is really cool. He says, no, you don't understand. He says, we can talk about survival from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed, and our wives aren't there to tell us, Morris, they don't care. <laughs> so it was heaven. I mean, now you ladies don't take that wrong, but. <laughs> yeah. That's the girl. Who wants to sing for us, you remember that, the Sama girl. Oh yeah. She also go to the sauna with us. Yes, yeah. And we have three women in the sauna who go with us, all the instructors, in the end of the course, and then he was afraid, Tom, don't take any pictures of my wife, say, well, uh. <laughs> I, I remember that I think we were, we were there about 15 days, and I think we probably, if I remember right, we had about five mess dinners. And if you weren't careful, of course, uh, <laughs> you could get extremely drunk. You had to pass your, pace yourself. And uh, I learned that there was these little bottles of schnapps, whatever you call it. And I noticed that the younger guys, uh, they, <laughs> they weren't tough enough. Uh, they were sort of neglecting their schnapps. And I said, if you, if you don't want to drink your schnapps, well, there was a row of about 20 <laughs> bottles, and I slowly kept pace uh, and so on, and, uh, and found that uh, all the young guys that weren't tough enough to be able to drink the schnapps that I could accommodate them. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, when there were, uh, uh, what is it? The, it was the civilians that came in their mess dinner when they, uh, uh, we're done. Then uh, uh, the military came. I think the first time, all of us, uh, Tom and I, uh, Tom included, and Mel Deweves, we had a equivalent of a mess dinner to welcome us there to that program. <clears throat> anyway, the uh, the situation was uh, very intense. Uh, the there was a van full of us, and the driver broke the speed limit and got fined by the Swedish police. 
So we chipped in and paid his fine, but he wouldn't know. Hmm? He's Christian. Yeah, he's Christian. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, we realized we hadn't done any shopping. Uh, the, the community that uh, uh, Karuna, is that Here, yeah. the city? Uh, a mining town where the highest quality ore in that part of the world was to be found uh, and so on for the reserve for the high qu highest quality steels. The, uh, uh, so a day or two before we were to leave for home, we went shopping in a crafting supermarket. And by then I had accumulated an enormous amount of Swedish money and I went crazy. And all I did was fill a normal shopping bag full of things. And I didn't pay much attention uh, about the money that you could reclaim your money at the airport if you weren't a Swedish citizen. So the taxes on what you pay, and it never tricked on me how much money I had spent to fill that bag. So when I came home and started to take the items, the, 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 you know, the gifts and everything, and uh, my wife looks at a price on the bottom. She says, what's this figure mean? And it was a wooden, traditional Swedish or Northern uh, drinking cup out of wood, and it said 225 on it. And I said, that's 225 crowns. So the probably crown was like four crowns to the dollar. I think I must have, well, if I do the math, I probably saved $75 for this little wooden cup. And then I added up uh, all of the other items I had in that bag, and it was over $4,000 Canadian. Uh, so they were beautiful gifts, but, uh, but the, uh, I didn't realize I'd spent that much money. Well, to, to uh, go a little further, I'm going home. Uh, I worked in this community uh, <clears throat> about five hours uh, um, north and west of where I live, and I noticed I'm, I'm driving through a community called Valhalla. Well, you can just surmise that who were the settlers that settled that region that they called Valhalla. And I uh, was driving along and I saw a garage sale sign. And it was kind of a long uh, driveway and I turned in just to have a break. And when I, what I saw on the sale tables in that garage sale, I immediately grabbed a bag and just like a whirlwind, I started throwing, I wasn't bothered because the Swedish trinkets and everything that were on that table, I think I might have matched the amount of money, uh, you know, the amount of value, but it was like 25 cents or 50 cents and so on. So probably for about $20 now, I bought these old ancient uh, uh, things that uh, were very, very Swedish, which I knew the value, but uh, yeah, I, I realized that I better not let anyone get ahead of me, and so I, I, I found that, uh, uh, that, that really added to my collection of Swedish things. Lars has got this many books in my library, then I have this many Swedish books in my library. People often ask, do you read Swedish? Well, I say, I. Good pictures, so I, I don't really have to read it. <laughs> There's references. All right, so I really appreciate the stories more. Uh, so another perspective, remember we were saying there's instructors and there's students. I was just uh, wondering if 
Ewan could take us back to those days there and maybe some of some of the, the courses or classes that had been run and the what you took from those. My reason for going to the this instructor symposium was simply that I a couple of years before was in the second class of of the survival instructors course. And uh, Jukasjärvi was the place where we had our winter part for the first number of years <clears throat> before it became too touristic and <clears throat> they had to, to move it. And um, at that time I was also responsible for um, everything that had to do with protective clothing and uh, soldiers uh, uh, carried the equipment. And um, of course, it was a, a huge amount of excitement to, to go uh, to an occasion like this with, with uh, some of these guys we didn't know, but we were a bunch of quite, quite young. Uh, I had been in the service for 15 years at that time. Um, but still, we were a number of uh, survival instructors that came there with quite high expectations and I would definitely say that uh, they came through in with the potential of, of 10 times what we could expect. We did actually talk and breed survival uh, all days long and I would actually say that we used some parts of the nights also. So it was quite intense. And there's also a saying, you should know that, guys, that what uh, is uh, happening in the sauna uh, academy of Jokasjärvi stays in the sauna of, of Jokasjärvi. And perhaps that's the best thing. Um, the days were actually filled up with um, really good workshops. It was a mixture of uh, indoor classes uh, and then of course with excellent winter conditions as it was uh, already in December uh, we had very good uh, workshops uh, outdoors also of course and I would say looking back at my 30 years in, in the military service I retired in 2010 this is definitely one of the, the highlights and it became uh, one of those occasions probably that inspired us as, as at least young uh, survival instructors to go on uh, because it was the best thing we actually could do, spend time in, in nature. It was our favorite occupation, simply. And um, the years that came after this became very strong connected to this happening, I would say. And that also made a lot of us uh, more interested in following up these guys and what they were doing uh, in the different countries and so on. It simply became a, a huge inspiration for us all. Well, that's awesome, Yuan. I just kind of want to expand on that a little bit, and I'm going to turn to Tom in a second. but. What I was thinking was, as I was listening to you, and you were reiterating a lot of the same kind of thoughts I had in my head about today for, for what we're doing and the, the sharing of knowledge and 
being able to, to, to live, breathe, talk, survival, bushcraft here. And there's just so many people. And it takes me to one of the things that uh, Don Cavellis was talking about the other day. And it was about how good does something have to be to become, you know, good. And he, he relayed a story to us about uh, he worked with a photographer one time and he'd asked the photographer, you know, uh, out of all those pictures you take, you know, how many do you need to take to make it to, to a magazine? And he had said, well, you know, I take roughly about 2,000 pictures and one will make it into a magazine. And that sparked a whole lot of other kind of thoughts and, and, and into the talking about there's a lot of things out there that we see that are, that are really good, but how many bad ideas or how many bad shots of pictures didn't make it, right? So coming back, and I guess what I'm trying to reel in here is with what we're doing here right now today, how does that link into what you guys did in 1995? Well, 1995 was the first one, mm -hmm. the inaugural uh, meeting. And we actually had one in 98 in Yeovilton in England, which the British Navy sponsored, which was excellent. Um, and then there was one in 2000 again back in Sweden. And um, that was the last one until today, this week. And I would say that it seemed to me that we were able to establish communications between was it 15 nations were there? Sorry. I think it was 15 nations, right? Yeah. yeah. Pretty much all of the free world. <laughs> and um, so if you, can, if you can establish communications and share the knowledge peacefully, I mean, there's gonna be discussion, of course, about, well, what about this and what about that and differences of opinions and tweaks here and there, but the generality was that we were trying to share the information of how instructors could teach better and could use simpler techniques to get complex things across. And I think that it's been successful. It hasn't been very public because I know, I don't go on the internet very much, but I was told to go somewhere and look at this, what do they call it, on a, on a discussion page, on a forum on a forum and look up this organization, International Association of Survival Instructors. So I did, and they were saying, the people were talking back and forth about, what in the hell is it? <laughs> is this organization? We never heard of this. What do they do? Who are they? Where are they? Blah, blah, blah. And I didn't, I don't know how to answer those things, so I just read it. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, but it, it didn't seem like it was huge publicity, there wasn't a lot of publicity about it. It was kind of a low key, and, uh, and maybe this meeting here that we're attending will help to make it more publicized. Uh, maybe that's not the right word, maybe uh, just so we can continue, so we can continue to share information peacefully and, and help everybody raise their abilities to do, do work. Okay, so just as we're, we're getting closer to near the end and we're gonna grab a couple questions from the, from the uh, 
audience. But before we do that, I'm just going to give uh, this panel here just an opportunity. Is there anything that you guys would like to, to bring out about the 1995 uh, symposium to share? Maybe something I missed. Is there something that you guys would maybe want to bring out? I don't think so. We, under that symposium 95, we were out in the forest quite a long time and uh, we have some lectures in the beginning and then we was out the full day and coming back again with snow machine. And so that was good when, when you was out with the people because you can talk to them in a good way. Morris, any last words? I'm overwhelmed, so I'm <laughs> trying to say something relevant. No. I've, every one of these events have I, I've been I enjoyed and I was always treated like royalty. Awesome. Uh, Tom, is there anything, last words? The only thing I would like to say about this, this organization that seems to be alive still, I think it's important that we all, all, are willing to share information with each other and to try to raise the, the level of the ability of everybody that we touch to do the things that we value and to continue to educate and to propagate the things that we stand for with this survival, bushcraft, emergency preparedness, all those things that uh, Lisa talked about in her great presentation today. Jan? I would like to point out that the major difference from 95 and today is that today it's a completely different uh, possibility of actually sharing and uh, reaching out and inspiring others on a quite solid uh, ground like we have been experienced here these days. So, so I think it's... Um, because even in those days, it created a, a very strong bound among the, the Swedish uh, survival instructors, and we we started off the, already after those days to to be closer in contact and sharing. And then I I believe actually that this specific week became a driver of the 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 further progress and development of our survival instructors going into other types of environments and at that time things changed for us also so we started to have deployments for uh, most types of environments uh, that we can actually experience on this planet so so i think that is something that's very good to to bring on to a symposium like this that we we perhaps can have a, a kind of variation of uh, locations and environments to, to simply learn more. And uh, Tom just wanted something to hear. My, my memory isn't as good as it should be and I was trying to think of the correct words. I want to thank Morfar Overlevned. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's correct. Morfar Overlevned. For those of you who are not Swedish, that means Grandpa of survival. Large yeah. <laughs> fault for making this first time happen. My grandson is very good. He's uh, now 15, yes. And he, when he went to school, he was not so good. 
and then uh, they was out the school in the forest and they should make uh, food and they couldn't start the fire the teachers and he went down there and start the fire directly but he didn't say that when he come home to his mother but when she was there and they talk about how it was in the school and they say he's perfect he start the fire in two minutes and then it's burn and then they say he can go no problem with him <laughs> okay so like i said i promised you a chance to do a couple of questions from the audience i'm not sure if there is any questions but if there is i'll ask you to to walk over here let's get in this queue here so do i have anybody any takers Are you just are you just getting up? Are you coming over? All right, we got we got one taker. <laughs> so, with all of the instruction that you did, have you heard of cases, instances of military personnel that have actually benefited and that came to you and told you of some experience because of your 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 training? What do you say? I can tell one or two. I actually have one too. Oh, well, you go first. Okay. So, as a as an experience for me, I'll tell you. And this is a little bit light, but the situation was pretty heavy, and I had recently. Give me a sec. <laughs> I'd recently had finished uh, my courses at Karamat, and uh, I was now starting to do the campy bit, and we had a crash in Cold Lake. And we lost one of our pilots. And our team had to respond. We had to go up uh, into the air weapons range, and we had to do the work. And it got cold, folks. It got really cold. Uh, Ted Dar, that's here, he was out there with us too, but it got cold. And uh, I went from zero to minus 52, and we were tasked with building a survival camp just off the crash site so that we could take care of the investigators. So I'm trying here, because this is, I'm sharing with you guys as a family, <laughs> it's something that, that still ticks away in me. But I'm trying to get onto the lighter side of it, and really, the, one of the things that was really, really beneficial to us out there was our ability to make coffee that we learned at Karamat and the way that Moore's told us because we were out there, it's cold, we didn't have anything. We had a few pieces of canvas between us and the cold. We had to make a fire on the ground. We just didn't have the resources, right? It happened so quick and we had to get out on the ground and do the work. But the skills that we had picked up from doing this stuff really, really made a difference for us out on the ground. So that's, that's just my sharing, but I'll give that to Tom. You know, all of you have probably thought about this. When, when we teach, we're teaching life and death skills. And when you have a student come to you, it's very wonderful and it makes you, it, it, it gives you purpose again when they sell, tell you words like, you saved my life. 
Student came to me after he had crashed an airplane in Alaska, and all he could remember after the crash was maintain body heat, maintain body heat, maintain body heat. He said that's what he chanted to himself. And he says, I could remember things then after that. Oh, wait a minute, maintain body heat. Oh, the windscreen was broken. So he put something in front of there. And he says, as soon as I remembered, I mean, he's in shock. I don't know how many people have ever been in a wreck, in a bad wreck where you were darn near unconscious. Yeah, it's, you're in shock, aren't you? Yeah, if all surviving, all survival situations start with the patient, the survivor in shock. Bang! Oh, crap, you know, and so, the ability to click into remembering mode of what you've been trained in is, is it happens because the training is so good. Well, anyway, he said, I knew I was going to survive when I quit saying maintain body heat because he had the yoke of his airplane. Maintain body heat, maintain body heat. And it, but he knew he had an airway. That was good. But the blizzard was blowing in a broken airplane. And he said, as soon as I took something and stuffed it in the hole, he says, I knew I was going to make it. And then three people died in the back of the airplane that weren't, that wasn't his fault, it was the airplane crashed. It was weather, and it was halfway between Galena and Nome. But anyway, he, he said, I knew what I had to do, because I just did it. And another time happened, this is a long time before that, but it's similar. Roger Locker was... Uh, some of you saw his picture today in my presentation. He was uh, an F-4 pilot in Vietnam who crashed 40 miles west of Hanoi and he was on the ground for 23 days. And uh, the thing that he remembered was when, when he hit the ground in North Vietnam, he said, it didn't bother me a bit. He says, I was scared and I was concerned, but he said, it looked like it smelled like, it felt like the Philippines where our training area was. And he says, oh, I've been here before. So when you do training, it's got to be realistic, it's got to be relevant, and you gotta remember it. Okay, on that note, I think we're uh, gonna turn this back over to David and Christian to do some draws. So I'll just ask my guests, uh, Moores and Tom and uh, Ewan to please exit the stage and Lars is gonna stay up here for one of the draws. Well, I hope you agree that was a great trip down memory lane, but also some really powerful messages there, particularly towards the end. Just a few things before you go. First of all, thanks to Tom, Lars, Moores, Johan and J-Mac for this panel. It was a pleasure to listen to in person at the time, but also a real pleasure to listen again as I worked on the audio for this podcast. Thanks to Laurie Brucemer for sending over the audio file from the AV desk at the event. It was easily tidied up into a good podcast audio file and I hope you, the listener, enjoyed the results and I'm very happy to have been part of sharing this discussion to the wider world. 
If you thought it was a worthwhile listen, then please share a link to this podcast via your favorite social media platform. It's much appreciated. And it will also get these venerable gentlemen, these experts, these grandfathers of the subjects in front of another generation too. If you want to watch the panel discussion, there will be a link to a video of the discussion in the show notes for this podcast at paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 47. That's paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 47. And while you're over at my site, paulkirtley.co.uk, remember to add your email address so I can keep you up to date with new material on my blog. You'll be amongst the first to know not only about my podcasts, but also videos and articles on my blog, as well as other less public online materials. Finally, if you don't already know, I should let you know that I was invited to chair the next Global Bushcraft Symposium, an honour which I invited Lisa Fenton to share with me and was glad she accepted. So Lisa and I will take the GBS forward to the next iteration, which will be in the UK in the summer of 2021. And I will, of course, let you know further details as and when we are able to release them. We are working on that event as I speak. So thanks for listening. I look forward to speaking to you on another podcast before too long. And in the meantime, have fun on your own adventures in the outdoors. Take care. Bye bye.